The old pilot's plain tales. Orford Ness. It's a remote spit of marsh and shingle-covered land that sticks out into the North Sea. Part of the chilly, windswept Suffolk coast of East England, Orford Ness stretches along the coast running from Shingle Street in the south up to Alderberg in the north. It lies around 30 miles south of the famous hamlet of Bungie, home to the Plain Talking UK podcast. The strip of land is almost completely cut off from the mainland by the rivers Old and Orr, and can only be easily accessed by ferry from the village of Orford itself, or the single road precariously balanced on a narrow beach to the north. The name itself comes from Old English and Norse origins, Orford meaning cattle ford, and Ness referring to a headland. The significance of this isolated strip of rather unwelcoming land to a story of aviation doesn't really start to have relevance until the First World War. Before that, Orford Ness was a salt marsh used by local people for grazing their livestock and collecting gulls' eggs until King Henry II built a fabulous medieval castle in the village as part of a chain of coastal defences. The spit of land itself was a considerable danger to shipping, and in the great storm of 1627, 20 ships met their end there, and eventually a lighthouse was constructed to warn mariners off the shoals. With its many tributaries, smugglers loved the area, but it wasn't until 1913 that it was put to a more legitimate use, when it was purchased by the British government's War Department. It took several years to drain the southern part of the King's Marsh, which then allowed the ground to be levelled to form an airfield, but by 1915 Orford Ness was ready to receive its first aircraft. The site was both remote and easy to secure, so when the War Office was looking for a secret location, to experiment with equipment for the burgeoning Royal Flying Corps, it made a good spot to use. The completion of the airfield heralded the arrival of the Central Flying School's Experimental Flying Section. This was the start of 70 years of intense military experimentation, which, as well as leaving a variety of fascinating physical traces, has given the place a mystique of secrecy. The site's isolation, the surrounding flatness and its proximity to the sea were all considered important prerequisites, particularly when considering the dubious reliability of early flying machines. The RFC didn't want its planes falling out of the sky in built-up areas. The research carried out at Orford Ness during the First World War covered a bewildering range of projects. The boffins there worked on parachutes and aircraft camouflage. Indeed, the RFC's original dark green varnish was given the acronym NIVEN for Night Varnish Orford Ness. Experiments were undertaken to suppress the noise of aircraft engines and build a hydraulically driven interrupter gear, 
to allow machine guns to fire through the propeller arc to match the German innovation. Experiments in night-flying tactics were performed, as well as the development of bomb and machine gun sights, parachute flares, and even an attempt to create artificial clouds. Despite the secrecy imposed, stories abounded about what was going on. On one occasion in 1917, whilst testing a new bomb site, a pilot released his weapons unaware that a strong southerly wind had picked up and his aircraft had drifted over the town of Alderberg to the north. Rather than falling harmlessly into the nests, the bombs, luckily practice bombs, a variety with no explosive, landed either side of a nearby Martello Tower, which housed an army detachment, neatly bracketing it. The garrison commander was incensed and immediately demanded that the pilot be arrested. In its early days, the mix of 600 civilian and military personnel there were housed in tents and wooden huts, with the aircraft kept safe in canvas hangars, but eventually they took over a local hotel to use as an officer's mess. Regardless of where they stayed, the unending need for innovation in the fight to improve the effectiveness of the Royal Flying Corps was paramount. Although it seems laughable nowadays, their work was cutting-edge, despite appearing to be rather Heath Robinson, a cartoonist famous for his satirical images depicting absurd contraptions. The experts there often had to make the best from whatever supplies they could get their hands on. The collection of slightly crazy British boffins there were very adept at turning their minds to whatever issue came up and the men around them seemed able to lay their hands on whatever was available and put it together to do the experiment. With raids on the civilian population by German zeppelins becoming a major concern, work was undertaken to find a way to bring down these monstrous machines. It was suggested that phosphorus bombs could be dropped onto the zeppelins from above, igniting the highly flammable hydrogen gas that kept them aloft. At Orford Ness, they also worked on developing depth charges, with a memoir telling the unlikely story of making these devices by filling cocoa tins with TNT. Apparently, to see an Oxford professor filling these tins by melting the high explosive on an old paraffin stove, smoking all the time and very often knocking his pipe out on the side of the tin, was always a little concerning. The range of ideas tested there was dizzying. Oxygen masks, electrically heated suits, aerial photography, navigation, night flying, leading to the revolutionary step of illuminating the aircraft's instruments, quick-release straps, bomb-release mechanisms, dive-bombing, armoured planes, and self-sealing fuel tanks, to name just a few. Despite the ludicrous failure to equip early RFC pilots with parachutes, Orford Ness did work on a parachute for pigeons. One would have thought that their wings might have served, but not so. 
The pigeon was still an important method of communication, and in order to keep remote outposts supplied with these brave little messenger carriers, they had to devise a way of using parachutes to deliver these homing pigeons in a wicker crate. Too small a parachute, and the impact killed the pigeons. But if it was too large, it came down so slowly that it was impossible to be accurate with the drop. Scientists who would become world-renowned, and in some cases shape the next war, gained valuable experience at Orford Ness. These would include Henry Tizard, who would champion the invention of radar, Whittle's jet engines and the bouncing bomb, and stories I have told in previous tales such as Tizard's trunk. Frederick Lindemann, Winston Churchill's scientific advisor during World War II, also cut his teeth there. Churchill himself inspected work at the site, during which flying ace Albert Ball embarrassingly turned his plane onto its back when landing. He was calling in to check on the latest ideas. It was the remoteness and perhaps the harsh weather which prompted a particular camaraderie in those stationed there, and many people remembered it fondly, some even requesting to go back when they were posted away. A devil-may-care attitude may also have helped many to cope with the daily dangers staff faced. During a flight in a two-man plane to test air-to-air fighting tactics, a rather perturbed air gunner suddenly signalled his pilot to land as quickly but as gently as possible. It transpired that in his enthusiasm he'd been a bit careless and the tail fin and rudder were all but shot through. The whole thing was only held together by a couple of bracing wires. When the ground crew arrived, it was to find the two young officers sitting on the grass doubled up with laughter. It's unsurprising that the risks taken there led to some pilots being fatally injured, which takes me to the point of this story. There's a fine school, only a few miles from where I sit now, called Beedales. One of its pupils was Oliver Byerley Walter Wills, and a look at the school records tells me a little about him. He was at Beedales from 1906 to 1910, and his contemporaries, and many who only saw him as an old boy, thought of him as the life and soul of any merry evening in which he took part. The Beedales Chronicle said of him, his powers of entertainment and merry-making were varied and endless. He never called himself a naturalist, but he had a knowledge of and an intimacy with earth and her beasts, birds and fishes that Melampus might have envied. He was a lover of music, inspired by and in turn inspiring his friends in his singing and playing and research. Uh, he was at Trinity College, Cambridge, until the beginning of the war, and then joined the Honourable Artillery Company. From this fine regiment, he obtained a commission in the Flying Corps, and went out to France in 1917. There is little more that can be found on the life of Oliver Wills, but we do know that he was a brave and tenacious pilot. On the 7th of March 1918, the London Gazette, 
the traditional home of all announcements concerning military personnel, printed the following passage. Lieutenant Oliver Miley Walters Wills, RFC, for conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty. He carried out a reconnaissance on a hostile heavy howitzer emplacement at nearly 8,000 feet over the line. He descended to a height of 2,000 feet and carefully examined the position. Having decided the exact position of the gun, he successfully directed artillery onto it, securing a direct hit on the emplacement. For this action, Oliver was awarded the Military Cross. In 1918, he was attached to the Armament Experimental Station at Orford Ness, and it was whilst engaged on his work there that he sadly met his death, a few short hours before the armistice would be declared. He had been up with a pilot, one Captain Horatio Thomas Other Windsor, in the back seat of a Bristol fighter D-8030. The F-2B was well thought of as a reconnaissance artillery spotting aircraft, which could also serve as a fighter, being as manoeuvrable as many of the single-seaters of the time. Indeed, it remained in service well after the war. What mission Oliver had been on is unknown, but the record states that, just as they were landing, he stood up suddenly, lost his balance, and fell out backwards falling to his death. The accident remains something of a mystery, and was all the more tragic being so close to the end of the conflict. Oliver wasn't the last airman to die before the 11th of the 11th, though. Nor would he be the last to die at Orford Ness. Experimental flying has always carried a great risk. On the very day that peace would be declared, Second Lieutenant Alan William MacDonald was killed at Easton on the Hill when his Avro 504K stalled during a climbing turn and nose-dived into the ground near Stamford. In the same area, on the same day, the young Second Lieutenant Eric Barclay Jones spun his RE-8 off a low turn and was killed. Indeed, in the month before the end of the war, there were more than 100 fatal accidents that frequently killed more than just the aircraft's occupants. The causes were various, but spinning or stalling in a turn were very common mistakes and particularly deadly. At Old Serum, a DH-9 stalled and nosedived into the ground, killing the pilot two ground personnel, and injuring 14 when the bombs it was carrying exploded. Two children were killed when they were hit by an aircraft taking off from a field near Letchworth. In many cases, pilots overstressed their fragile machines, causing the wings to fold back and leaving them to plummet earthwards. With no radio or air traffic control, collisions were also frequent despite the uncrowded skies of the time. The value of Orford Ness, however, would continue to grow. Secret testing would carry on through World War II and into the 1970s. The site was selected as the location for the Orford Ness Beacon, 
one of the world's earliest experiments in the use of long-range radio navigation. In between the wars, the NES was the location chosen to set up the first experimental systems that would become known as radar. Having proved the technology there, Robert Watson Watt and his team moved to nearby Bordsey Manor, where they developed the chain home radar system that would provide so vital a defence to the country during the Battle of Britain. The 1950s saw the development of atomic weapons there, when the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment took over part of the site. The odd-looking concrete structures, called pagodas, can still be seen there. These intriguing buildings contained pits, into which the very large early nuclear bombs could be lowered by enormous cranes. Once in place, the bombs were subjected to vibration, g-force and extreme temperature tests to ensure that these fearsome weapons could be carried safely by the growing fleet of V-bombers that the RAF were bringing into service. Among the atomic experimental sites used at the time, Orford Ness is perhaps the most architecturally dramatic and remains the only one allowing general public access. The work finally ended there in 1971. Our American cousins also made use of Orford Ness. In 1968, work started on the top-secret Anglo-American System 441A, an over-the-horizon radar project, codenamed Cobra Mist. The project was set up to carry out several missions, including detection and tracking of aircraft, detection of missile and satellite launches, fulfilling intelligence requirements of the time and providing a research and development testbed. An integral part of this project were 18 strings of antenna in the shape of a vast open fan. The fan was accompanied by a large aluminium ground net covering some 80 acres. Stories grew up around Cobra Mist, claiming the research was actually centred on capturing UFOs, these stories often originating in the village of Bungie. By the 1980s, Orford Ness was home to more peaceful exploits when the BBC took it over to place powerful radio transmitters there which would broadcast the BBC World Service around the clock to continental Europe. The World Service would eventually be replaced by the old pirate rock radio music station Radio Caroline, which transmitted from there but now Orford Ness is owned by the National Trust and is open to the public as a nature reserve. The public can wander around the strange structures and wonder at the history of the site. Perhaps they also think on the short life of Oliver Wills, one of the very last pilots to die in the First World War. For anyone who visits the area, he's buried and honoured forever at St. Bartholomew's Church in the village of Orford itself, under a gravestone based on Oliver's own design.
If you enjoyed this story, it would be great if you could mention it on social media and perhaps leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.